you know, the magic of storytelling is something that gives and it takes and uh, brings people together. And that's, that's what turns me on about doing it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Afterglow. I'm Brendan Madigan, your host, and this is the second episode with local hero and rock climbing icon Dave Nettle. Here in Tahoe, we put Dave on a pedestal. He's an athlete that's motivated us through his stories for many, many years and has done so in a humorous and humble fashion. He has been a master of adventure storytelling for over 40 years and is a rock climbing icon that has largely flown under the radar of the mainstream media. Despite this, and the fact that he doesn't have any sponsors, he occupies a place of extreme respect by those in the adventure community as one of the most long-standing and progressive athletes of his generation. He's a hard man cut from the cloth of Yosemite's golden age and has been accomplishing amazing physical feats in the mountains with the utmost style since the late 70s. But before we get into our conversation with Nettle, I'd really like to give you some personal background about him. I moved to Tahoe in 2003, fresh out of college and yearning for adventure. I was young and seeking something, maybe at the time, which I didn't know. And so I uprooted my entire life. Uh, I left my East Coast family behind, friends and all, and moved to the Sierra Nevada, where I really wanted to chase my own personal dreams of mountain adventure. I was lucky enough to meet Dave through some mutual friends. Now, mind you, I had heard of Dave. His adventures in the mountains, both climbing and skiing, were the things of legend. He was famous for going on these rowdy mountain adventures that, to be honest, I really aspired to in my own right. You know, things like uh, rock climbing in the Alaska Range or alpine climbing in Patagonia or the infamous dawn patrol on Tahoe's West Shore. And as luck would have it, seeing Dave give a slideshow in a friend's living room would prove to be instrumental in my own life. And if I look back on that time, I can't remember what the topic was of his show, but I remember being riveted to some amazing and aspirational storytelling. He had this innate ability to take you to a place that you had never been, and honestly, might not ever go. And he did so in a humorous and aspirational fashion that showed a youthful and naive me how magnetic adventure storytelling could be. And if I fast forward 15 years to today, I would have never guessed how powerful and influential this particular show would prove to be for me. So not only are Dave and I great friends, but we've also created and built the Winter Film Series together, which you'll recall was the motivation behind this new podcast initiative. So obviously Dave holds a very special place in my heart. Through his storytelling, he's given back to the North Tahoe community for literally over 40 years. I hope you enjoy our conversation and Dave's uncanny ability to teach us all universal truths through his stories. He's an amazingly humble person with a big heart. This interview was recorded in November of 2016. At the time, I was pretty sick, and you'll hear this in the raspy nature of my voice. 
But sitting down with Dave was tremendously validating and inspirational on many, many levels. He and I are great friends, but to sit down and mic him for a one-on-one chat was really special. So here it is, episode two of Afterglow with the one and only Dave Nettle. I hope you enjoy it. Every fall, when your show's coming up in November, everyone's super psyched because they can relate to that. You yeah. know, they oh, yeah. can relate to the humor and and the relatable adventure, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's awesome. I think that's super compelling in the stories, and and always has been since I met you. You know, yeah. um, but you're you hail from Southern California. Yeah, Southern California. You know, I was uh, born in the Bay Area uh, way back in the day. Kind of grew up in Southern California. Probably would have been just another skateboard surf rat. But uh, at about age nine, my dad was transferred to the Pacific Northwest and uh, grew up in Bellevue, Washington at a time when it was a tiny little place, not, you know, headquarters for all the big, uh, you know, know, internet companies and so on. And that's really what turned my, my head around. And what was interesting is that then when my dad was transferred back to Southern California when I was 13, I thought it was the end of the world. It was... I was like, no way. I'm being torn out of the mountains. But then it was about that time that I discovered the Sierra Nevada and it realized that, in fact, I had returned to a whole new different world. Beautiful place. Yeah. And you you did a lot even in your teenage years, right? Uh, yeah. You know, my, my original interest, it was revolving around backpacking. As a matter of fact, my start as a rock climber, I think the first words, the first input I got about my rock climbing ability was, He's never going to be a rock climber. So uh, my uh, scoutmaster had taken a bunch of us out rock climbing. And if we read this one book, you know, that kind of gave us all the, the safety about rock climbing, we could go rappelling. It was one of those things. So on the bus ride up to the Sierra to the start of a long backpacking trip, I read the book. And so um, he took us out, and I was one of the first guys to rappel over the edge. And he had rigged us up with a prussic, you know, so that if you let go, you wouldn't go plunging to your death, you know, and I was just a little runt. I was a runty little pre-teenager. And what year is this? Uh, this is 72. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I rappelled over the side, and it kind of got to an overhang, and one thing led to another, and somehow I got my shirt tangled up in the the rappel device, and I think I got my prussic knot stuck, and the poor scoutmaster was, like, trying to talk me out of it. I'm just like, I'm out of here, and I just, like, hand over hand all the way up the rope, about 100 feet up this overhang to get back, and he's like, man, you'll never be a rock climber. You're just too <laughs> too wild and crazy, so... Uh, but it, it, I really took to it and loved it. I just had to do it again. Right. And as I understand it from hearing numerous intros to <laughs> numerous slideshows, right, you you hiked both the PCT and the CDT yep. before they were even completed. Correct? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then where, where did that springboard you to? Well, you know, I mean, for me, the, the whole idea was I loved to backpack, but it was always about setting a goal. And, uh, and this is something that I always try to get through in my slideshows too, is it doesn't really matter what the goal is. It doesn't have to be something crazy or silly. It just has to be something that, uh, you know, people want to set out to accomplish something, you know, that's meaningful. And so for me early on, um, I don't even know how it just struck me, but um, I just love doing the long backpacking trip. So my first intro was actually before that, 
when I was 16 with a couple of friends. We hiked right here from Tahoe uh, down in, you know, Meeks Bay here uh, to Yosemite Valley and then on down to Mount Whitney and across Giant Forest. And when I think about it now, you know, you run into 16-year-old kids now and their parents, they'd be like, what, you want to take off alone with your buddies for two months across the Sierra? But for some reason at that time, our folks were down with it and they're like, yeah, you know, just have fun, you know. And so after that, I was hooked. And so in 1975, the year after that, I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada solo. And I have to say that that was probably the hard, emotionally the hardest thing I've ever done in my life because I was going from this real social high school setting and the idea of hiking alone sounded so glamorous. But after a couple of months, you know, it was, you really felt like, man, life is passing me by, you know, all my friends are doing these other things. And so when I finally crossed the border in Canada, you know, after five and a half months, it was a great accomplishment and I'm glad I did it. But it kind of sealed for me that really the greatest joy wasn't just accomplishing what you set out to do, but sharing that with people directly and then later in stories. So that's, uh, that was kind of the springboard there. Right. And in your teenage years, when you're yeah. doing these things, your folks were just free reign, do it. Pretty free reign. Yeah. You know, they, they came from the, the philosophy of like, go and grow. I kept hearing that from, you know, my, my parents were, you know, they, you know, they felt like you had implicit, unconditional trust until you lost it. And then you had to claw your way back, you know. So I learned early on that, you know, these things were, you know, the, getting your trust from friends and parents, it was a big deal. And for me, uh, th- that was important. It, it taught me a lot of independence, uh, taught me a lot of appreciation of of things. And yeah, they were really supportive. Although I think there were times when they didn't really realize what I was doing. I remember one time giving a slideshow for the neighborhood. This is very early on, um, one of the the first time I had climbed El Capitan. And I can even remember as the neighbors are getting together in our living room, my mom's like, this is so great. Dave's going to show us some pictures of hiking in Yosemite. You know, and like the first <laughs> pictures are like swinging off El Cap. And the look on her face was kind of like, yeah, maybe I didn't tell her exactly what I was doing. So... Um, but yeah, no, they were very supportive. Classic. Yeah. Yeah. Neighborhood slideshow, <laughs> Jesus. Um, and, and how did you, so those teenage years spent in Southern California and, and various adventures, how did you end up in Tahoe? So I was going to, right after high school, I took a year off. I climbed Denali, um, you know, Mount McKinley with another buddy. And that was a whole nother story. We were kind of flailers on that, but we summited and learned a lot. Um, and so I took a year off and went to, and then I went back into to college in Southern California and it just wasn't happening. It, it, I loved school. I did well in school, but it just wasn't connecting for me. And it just so happened that a, a gal that I was crazy about was moving to Davis and so I'm like, well, that's a great reason to go to a college. So I kind of followed her to Northern California and ended up working in the outdoor industry in Sacramento. And we were involved in, in the store that I was working at. We were involved in a buying um, a little, uh, what would you call it, a buying group, you know, of small shops that were kind of getting together there. And Alpenglow was and Don Fife was in one of the little buying, one of the parts of the buying group. And I just liked his style. He and Peter Werbel were just so smooth and kicked back and athletic. And I'm like, wow, Tahoe sounds pretty good. 
So that summer, I was actually working in the Sierra backcountry at Bear Paw Meadows, and I wanted to work at Alpenglow and move to Tahoe. It's just like, kind of like setting a summit goal. It's like nothing's going to turn me back. So I remember literally sitting out on a, you know, this little granite outcrop with a radio to call because we had to call a dispatch at a fire lookout who then would connect us to a landline. So I did my interview with Don Fife over a radio in the backcountry, and he, you would have to say over, so it would be like, um, like if you and I were talking, I'd go, okay, so uh, Brendan, how are you doing? Over. And then you'd have to do this. And it was going back and forth like this, and Don's trying to remember who I was. And he's like absolutely insistent. He's like, we're a small shop. I, I don't have room for anybody else. I can't pay you that much. I'm like, perfect, I'll be there. You know. And uh, so I went to work for him. Two days a week, $4.50 an hour. But, man, it's like any adventure. Just get your foot in the door and good things happen from there. Ticket, I, ticket to ride. Yep, ticket yeah. to ride. And so, for me, I connected with the, the community through the shop and uh, never looked back. Talk to me about your... I mean, because you... I think that one of the things that has impressed me the most about you as an athlete and just a person is your consistent drive. I mean, it's obviously been burning since those days as a teenager sure. through hiking um, trails and whatnot to now. I mean, you're not slowing down. I mean, <laughs> I mean you literally, young bucks will come in the store <laughs> and they'll talk about, you know, doing it like Nettle does it. And, and I mean, literally, that's legendary, right, you know. Right. How, do you, how do you keep the focus and the, and the stoke alive? Yeah, well, you know, I think a big part of that is, is people are a product of their habits, you know? And so if, if somebody goes through their whole life, you know, with a desk job and suddenly at, you know, age 40, they decide, oh, I've got to make this life change. It seems more dramatic to suddenly go, okay, I'm going to start, I want to climb the seven summits or sail the seven seas or something. But when you live a life where it's, it feels like it's a smooth flow, a continuity, you know, it doesn't feel like anything is that crazy. You know, it's, you start by one adventure, and like I said, you come home and you've thought about other places. Curiosity is a big part that keeps the drive going. There's parts of this world I want to see. I don't just climb for the, the sake of the athletic you know, endeavor, but again, for engaging in different cultures, different parts of the world. It's, uh, the climbing is more kind of the medium, but the driving force is to see this world, to live life fully. You know, That's really what does it. And so... Uh, the, and the other thing, too, is, I mean, it might be much more legend than reality what you were talking about, because if somebody were to actually dissect what I do, like they just said, OK, we're going to look at his resume. There's there's nothing that's particularly stand out, you know, when it comes to the world of setting records or something like that. But it's more just I like doing it a lot. And I've made a, a real priority in my life to balance work and travel and play and still have time for, you know, the people I want to spend time with, the people I love. Um, so I think it's more that balance than anything. It's kind of like a slideshow. I know this is, this is going to kind of be a weird analogy, but I've thought about this before, is sometimes people will come up to me and go, those pictures were amazing. What camera did you use? You know, they, because they're seeing the whole. They're looking at this, this entire collection. But seriously, if you look at any one given picture, it's like, oh, that's, it was kind of out of focus. The lighting isn't that good. And, you know, it isn't really composed. It's not going to make National Geographic. 
But when you look at it as a story, as a life fulfilled, it always has, it always seems bigger than real life, I guess is what I'm saying. So for me, it's, it's about just keeping curious, keeping excited about life, um, trying not to do anything so crazy that you end up, end up getting injured. I'll just tell you, that's the reality, man. I've seen a lot of people eddy out in life because, you know, tendonitis or they, you know, get so banged up doing something. And so it's, it's really a tough balance between pushing hard and trying to just be moderate, you know, moderation. Right. Well, and I think, I think the, what you say about those photos is, is a good talking point because I know when, when we throw those shows, I mean, literally, um, you know, maybe it started to change a little bit in the last few years with the big names that are coming to the winter film series. Sure. But every November, I don't have a, a, a any worry that that room will not be <laughs> packed. And I think that that obviously there's a lot of love for you in the community, and there should be because you're you're a great person. But I think what what resonates so much with your storytelling, which is the same analogy with your photos, is um, I think what makes something good is if someone's talking about something in a way that's relatable. Yeah. You know, and that's the whole point, right? You know, as Will's thing, just get out and move, do something. Yeah. And it's your message that, you know, if you, you come from a place of passion and interest that you get out there and do it. Um, but it allows the listener Mm-hmm. to connect with you. Yeah. I think there's a lot of power in that, right? Absolutely. It, one, it says they're super hungry for it. <laughs> and two, what you're giving them obviously is resonating and they're stoked. I mean, people, they talked about the show for, you know, a month. Right. You right. know, which is, I think it's got to make you feel pretty good, right? Well, it, and right on the spot too, is that there there's a synergy that happens at these shows, you know, just talking about that, is that a lot of people go, oh, you must feel so happy that you're, sharing this so that people get energized. I'm like, you know, it's, it's, it's like body work, you know, it's coming back. Believe me, when I'm up there and I get lost in the story, I'm not reciting something. Like if somebody said, that was great, say it again, just like that. I'd be like, no way. I've actually had people do that where I'm uh, maybe telling a story and it's being recorded like this. And they go, that was great. Can you do that again? We didn't quite have the timing right. Like, no, this is, life is spontaneous. My life is not scripted. I think that's uh, probably gotten me in trouble a few times. (laughs) It's very spontaneous. But that energy comes back from the crowd as well. And it doesn't have to be a room full of people. It could be one person. It could be people sitting around a campfire. Um, You know, the magic of storytelling is something that gives and it takes. And uh, it brings people together and... That's that's what turns me on about doing it. It's awesome. Yeah. And can I mean I think that answers a question which was going to I was going to ask you how do you feel about the power of storytelling? I mean you've done it shit since you were a teenager <laughs> apparently. Yeah, yeah. So well, you know, I, I mean I know it's powerful because I love going to you know presentations. I love being a a, a spectator as much as I love you know presenting shows. Um, I always get nervous when I give a show. People are like, oh, you do this all the time. You got this. Just drop in and with five minutes to go. And it's like, no, it's, it's exciting. It's, to me, it's just like when I go on a climbing expedition. I've got, uh, this is one of my favorite sayings about life in general coming at you here. It's like I have confident uncertainty, right? And 
And it's the same thing with the slideshow. You go in there and it's like you're confident because you know the material. It was your life. And, but you're still uncertain. You know, if you're going to stumble over words, how the people are going to react, what's going to happen. But you're confident as well. So it kind of circles back around. And I realize that the, this art of storytelling has traditions in every culture. It's how a lot of information is passed on. You talked about learning from these things as well as being inspired uh, you know, there's life lessons, there's actual technical lessons. People go away from, the, from a story going, wow, I never knew that. That's, that's something I can apply to my life. It's very cool. And I think we're so overstimulated now that, right. you know, through all these channels that we're bombarded with, email, social media, you name it, yeah. coming our way every day in, in just a massive volume that the spoken word... yeah accompanied by images and maybe some video is super powerful. Talk to me about the trajectory of the winter film series, right? Yeah. Because you and I have been doing it for over 10 years, Yep. but that's just a snippet. Sure, sure. When, when I first moved to Tahoe, I had already been giving a couple of slideshows, you know, down in Davis and uh, in Sacramento when I worked at Alpine West down there. And even before that, when I... Um, had hiked the Pacific Crest Trail and the Continental Divide Trail. So I'd kind of come from this tradition of that slideshows were just a part of the mountain life. I mean, to me, they were inseparable. Uh, I grew up on a, a healthy dose of Galen Rowell, Doug Robinson, Royal Robbins, Yvonne Chouinard. Those were the people that I would do whatever it took to go see their slideshows, you know, um, mid-70s, hop in my 69 Camaro and blast up to Yosemite Valley because a presentation was given. It meant that much because it was another way to connect to that big vibe that the outdoors has. And so um, to me, I enjoyed giving the slideshows and and they began in the in, when I moved here to Tahoe, just like you had mentioned, living room presentations. People would get home from a trip, throw the projector up there, um, sometimes we would have fun theme type slideshows where everybody would show up with just five slides, throw them all in a carousel, and you had literally your five slides of fame, and then it would move on. And so there was a lot of fun with that. And uh, in the in the late '80s, I had an opportunity to use the what was at that time the Olympic Village Inn. Uh, it was it wasn't affiliated with Squaw Valley at that point. But they were doing timeshares out of there, and I had a connection and just said, man, this place seems like it would be awesome to use. And start, I started up a slideshow series on my own, and I basically gave most of the shows. Um, and again, the idea wasn't as a stage for what I had to offer, but more, it brought climbers and skiers together, and it, and it really clicked. And people coming to Tahoe for the first time, moving into the area, and friends tell them, hey, you should check this out. They come up to me after the show and say, this is great. I feel like I'm part of a community. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're kind of drifting around in a bubble for a while. It takes a little while sometimes in a mountain community to get traction. And these events are a great way to kind of jumpstart that. I, t I totally agree. And, and it jumpstarted me. You yeah. Know, it chucked yeah. me into the community. And I remember, dude, seeing you know, Lynn Hill. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I remember explicitly when Timmy O'Neill came to town <laughs> and goofed on you so hard oh, yeah. and said, introduced you with some shit I can't even repeat. <laughs> um, 
about it, the, it about hasn't the, always been a family event. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but no, and, and we talk about it a lot at the shop because, you know, I think the fact that people come out to these events and they're so hungry and they're so engaged, right, that they want to be and need to be a part of something bigger than just themselves. You yeah, know? absolutely. And I think that's, it's super powerful. And it's a shame that, you know, a larger segment of the, maybe the population doesn't experience that. Yeah. To me, when I go to these slideshows, whether I'm presenting or a participant, a spectator, probably one of the most common things that are said, either before, during, or after these slideshows between people. So, hey, so what what are you going to be doing? What do you got next? What are you doing? And to me, that is okay. In a way, it's like you willingly go into a group of peers who are all stoked on life, and we're kind of, in a way, holding each other accountable to live life fully. Because nobody wants to say, well, you know, I got nothing, man. I'm over it, you know? And, and I'm not saying that's wrong if that's what you choose, but most people don't choose that. And all of a sudden, they're like, you know, what is next? What will excite me? What do I need to do to feel that I am living life fully? And it doesn't have to be crazy and exciting. It's just like, you know what? I'm going to wake up a little early and get a couple of laps skiing before I go to the office. That's, that's huge. And, you know, being accountable by a group of peers in a friendly way where you're jabbing each other with elbows and bear hugging and going like, what's next? It's just like people walk away with their heads spinning with plans. And I think that's good medicine. Yeah. Yeah. It's making a difference in people's lives, right? Oh, yeah. 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 I, I always jokingly say when they go, you know, so, you know, why do you give slideshows? Like, what's your goal? And I'm like, well, hey, I'm doing it for world peace, right? <laughs> kind of jokingly, but like, hey, if everyone's having fun and accomplishing what they set out to do and skiing powder and climbing granite, there's no time for, you know, war. Life is good. Life is good. Yeah. No one wish, <laughs> no one dies saying they wish they had spent another day at the office. Right. right. Those are never famous last words. Yeah. I I do want to hear more about um because in my eyes as someone who's uh you know played in the mountains for 20ish years now, you and then the early Alvin Glow crew were kind yeah. of the pioneers of not only Dawn Patrol skiing in Tahoe. Yeah. I don't want to make it sound as if no one had ever of, done that before course, you. Of, of course, course, the Rick Sylvester's of the world yeah, were out they, there doing it. Yeah. Cavemen yeah. were there in the dawn. Um, but also this concept of door-to-door, Alpine-style right. ascents. You know? yeah. Tell me about that. Well, you know, to, to kind of lead up to the door-to-door, you know, or in a day or in a push sort of thing, which is exciting, kind of getting back to that Dawn Patrol thing, it's actually kind of an interesting story. It was also a great way just to um, share Stoke with the, you know, our friends at Alpenglow and, you know, not just employees, but people that kind of joined on. But I remember we, for about oh, maybe eight or so years, we kind of had this thing go- going that we called the Five and Five Club. It wasn't really a club, but it kind of sounded good. And basically what it meant was meet in front of Alpenglow at 5 a.m. and everyone leaves at five after. So I remember one new employee, no names mentioned, came on board. It's kind of like, yeah, I'll jump in with these guys. It's cool, you know. Showed up at like 5.07. 
and no one was there. And there, he's like, what a bunch of losers. I knew no one would show up. <laughs> of course, <laughs> we were already up the skin track by the time he figured out he wasn't skiing that day. So anyway, it, part of it was just the fun of doing it, you know, just for the stoke, but also it was very practical. We had, you know, the, you know, the timing pretty much dialed. But for me, you know, one of the things that's always interested me is kind of not always turning the odds in your favor when you have an objective, you know. So, uh, for example, alpine climbing has always interested me more than the big siege-style climbing, you know, where you have 50 people, you know, climbing Mount Everest with 400 porters and, you know, camps are established. It's a great way to do it. It's, I have no problem with people that do that, but it just never really interested me. You know, I wanted to kind of put the odds against myself, make it more, you know, between me and the, and the challenge of the mountain. So over time, it became kind of a gradual pairing away of equipment and pairing away of time to the point where, to me, what really interested me was the notion of waking up after a little nap, so I'd go to work, come home at 6, take a nap, get up at like 10 o'clock at night, drive down to the southern Sierra, you know, about five hours, hike in during the night, put up a new route on a, you know, 10 to 15 pitch wall, sometimes hadn't even seen it before, just suspected it, and then drive back to Tahoe and get there in time for work. And it's like, the classic thing was if you were late for work, you couldn't brag about what you did, whether it was a day skiing or a climb. So there was a big incentive. And it was just awesome just being thrashed, tired but wired. And you're there at work and somebody comes in, a customer, and they're like, oh, it's so bad that you have to work today. And you're just smiling because, you know, you're actually having a paid rest day is what you're having. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that kind of inspired it. Um, from just a challenge on it on its own, but also it really, over the years in the Sierra, has equipped me for techniques that I've been able to take to the mountain ranges of the world, where you where you have a much higher consequence if you don't get to the summit and back in a short time, if you get caught out at night or you get caught out in a storm. So, being able to move light and fast in that situation is is definitely a skill, and so it was kind of fun honing that here in the uh, in the range of light. And springboarding it to bigger ranges. Exactly. Yeah. You know, going to uh, Greenland, Baffin Island, Patagonia, throughout the Alps and the Himalaya. Those have all been places where, um, you know, where I would do the one-day dash more as a novelty here in, in the Sierra. It was an essential technique to be able to do it in, the, in those uh, other settings. Yeah, there's a classic story that uh, Don, the original owner of Alpenglow, has told me where you and uh, you guys were walking the, all, the halls at OR yep. and you run into Conrad Anchor and, you know, you Don and Conrad chat and you have to run away to an appointment. And Conrad says to Don, like, what the fuck, man? This guy, <laughs> wherever this guy goes, he gets perfect weather. He's in and out. So I'd like to think there's some some magic in, in training that in the Sierra, right? Oh, yeah. No, it definitely. There's, you know, the, the, the class, in regards to that, you know, the classic saying is, is it better to be lucky or fast when you're in the mountains? And the answer is, well, it's better to be lucky, but once you get lucky, then you'd better be fast. So it's a double-edged sword. But uh, no, uh, Conrad and Jay Smith and some other buddies, um, 
you know, they just g- gave me a hard time because especially in regards to Patagonia, I've had some pretty good luck with the weather there. You know, I've never had to do the two month, you know, suffer fest in a, a, a ratty cabin. You know, I've always managed to get lucky. And then once the luck pops up, then make a dash for it. Right. And I think that's a good segue because I, I think the other one of the things that is so appealing yeah. is the fact that you've never been sponsored. <laughs> like you're sponsored by Dave Nettle, right? Well, yeah. I mean, that that's an interesting question because, first of all, I feel we're, we're all supported. If we take the word sponsorship and just kind of call it support, we all receive support in different ways. You know, whether it's just people encouraging you, uh, having a uh, an employer that gives you the time off to pursue your dreams, whether it's a, a manufacturer that maybe recognizes that you, you know, have a little higher profile in the industry and they style you out with either equipment or maybe a deal. There's a lot of different different levels, but I've always avoided the the flat out sponsorship, um, not because I have anything kind of ethically wrong with it, but because a, a real big part of my uh, why I climb is for freedom and independence. It really is. It's like when I'm out there, I'm not going out there with any sense of obligation other than what I put on myself. If I show up at the base of a climb and I look it over and I'm not feeling it, there's no little tiny pressure in the back of the mind saying, you know, you've told a lot of people you're going to do this. this guy, they gave you this tent, you know, you're going to have to come back and and, and I know a lot of friends that are sponsored. They do a great job with it. And some of them say, well, you know, I, nah, that doesn't influence me. I, I make my call whether I'm sponsored or not. So we all react differently. I was brought up um, pretty much with when my dad said, if you say you're going to do something, you do it. If you tell somebody you're going to mow their lawn for three bucks, man, as a kid, you don't do a shabby job, right? Or you don't say, well, I can't do it. Or you don't mow half the lawn and blow it off. So I was raised with kind of this, you know, overriding sense of, you know, obligation. And so for me, it's just, I just am more in my world when I can go on these big climbs and feel like I'm doing it for just myself and the satisfaction and sharing that with my, my climbing partners. And then if everything falls together well and we get some good pictures and we have a fun story and there's almost always something to talk about, then coming back and sharing it. And that's where I get my satisfaction. That's awesome. Yeah. And it, I mean, you've, you've referenced a couple kind of stories from your father. How was, how was, what role did he play in, in you growing up? Well, he's still alive, right? No, no. He passed away, uh, just almost 10 years ago, but boy, he, you know, he was, he lived to be 92 and uh, just a quick little story that kind of gives the uh, idea of he was pretty much the real thing right to the very end. So I remember he had just turned 90 and my brother was living at home. It was always hard to tell who was taking care of who, you know, everyone's, oh, how nice. Your brother's taking care of your dad. And it's like, well, my dad kind of does the laundry and stuff. And, but anyway, my brother calls me and goes, oh, my God, dad, dad f- took a fall. And I'm thinking to myself, well, at age 90, that's when people just start tipping over, and he probably got hurt, and I was all worried. Well, it turned out he was next door helping our neighbor move his refrigerator. So here, you know, I'm just like, Dad, you can't really do that at 90. But you know, classic. He, yeah, classic. So anyway, he played the role of, I would say, not so much shaping my outdoor 
interests, but shaping my character. You know, he really held me accountable to, uh, you know, being a gentleman, to doing the right things. As I mentioned earlier, is like trust is one of the um, easiest things to have. But once you lose it, it's one of the hardest things to gain back. And and so it was those life lessons and the fact that he just kept himself really fit, you know. And uh, I mean, I kind of grew up with, you know, every week, you know, he'd come up, all right, Dave, put your elbow on the table. I'm like, oh, no, I'm got to arm wrestle my dad again. He had these big burly forearms. And um, and, it, and thinking about it, you know, I realized that had to have been tough for him, you know, as he got older and I got stronger. He knew those scales were going to tip, you know, at some point. And so it was, but it was fun. You know, he was a, a very big influence in terms of shaping character um, and also respecting what was important, what I felt was important in my life. He was a corporate man. He worked for Mobile Oil Company for 37 years, got the pension. You know, I mean, he was like by the book, old school. And uh, I think it was hard for him early on to understand why I was called to climb these mountains and travel. But he saw I was happy and he, and he supported that. He was like, you know, hey, you, you're doing what you love to do and that's important. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So it must have been hard to lose him. Yeah, it was hard, but but it was also it's it's much easier to lose somebody you love when you can look at them and say, now here's somebody who's lived their life fully. Like if he had spent his last twenty years just sitting in front of the television doing nothing, but the guy was active, you know, and so it's and we had heart to heart talks. I mean, this is something I've shared with people, and we all deal with it, right? Or in theory, we deal with it as um, you know, parents get older and. When he was 92, we had the sit-down talk, and he's like, Dave, I'm done. I'm ready to go. But he didn't want to quit. He was not a quitter, as you could kind of gather from this. And I'm like, man, you've, had, you've lived your life. You you've really have a lot to be proud of. And I'd, I'd say, man, let it go. You know, We're going to miss you, but let it go. And he ended up passing away a few days later in his sleep in his bed at home. He'd lived fully, and when it, he just knew when it was time to go. Wow. Yeah. And I think if you love somebody, you can let them go like that. So anyway, yeah, uh, you know, I miss the guy, but at 92, I think you've, you, you, yeah, you're on the good side of the... Yeah, and we're all on that path, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm fascinated by parent-offspring um, relationships. Yeah. Because right? it, yeah. it forms who we are, and where we come from is... is um, is kind of the bow and we're the arrow, right? Oh yeah. And that's the parents, <laughs> the parents role. Oh yeah. yeah. How about mom? Is she still alive? No, my, my mom passed away pretty early, pretty early on. It's wild. This is the other thing. And I'm sure people that uh, are hearing this relate to this too, is if you even begin to approach the age at which that your parents died at, it's, it's wild. It's like, oh, my God, you know, because you, your parents always seem like, oh, they're old and, you know, that's a, that's a whole different story. But, no, she passed away when she was 69. She was a, a, a lifetime heavy smoker, and she passed away of lung cancer. But you know what? She was a, a big influence in my life. You know, she was a pain in the ass. She really held me accountable. If I had a chore to do at home, there was no putting it off. There was no negotiation negotiations it was just one of those things like 
before you leave, you got to do the dishes because that's your job and it's now. It's like, oh, gee, come on. I'll, I, I'll, do, I'll do them twice as many when I get back. It's like, no, this is not a negotiation. And so I think she really helped hone my persistence and my determination and, uh, and my independence. A lot of people have, uh, you know, it's like, man, I, I'm very loyal but fiercely independent. And in a life of relationships, that's, that cuts both ways, you know. I'm, I've been a pain in the butt for a lot of people, too. But, uh, but yeah, no, my mom was really the one who was like, go and grow. If it's important to you, you'll find a way to do it. You know, that wasn't, oh, yeah, here's the money or here's the car. It's like, oh, you want that? Okay, how are you going to get it? And it's like, at the time, it seemed like she was trying to make life tough on me. But uh, it, it ended up resulting, I think, in a little bit of character development. I'm certainly persistent at this point. Yeah. yeah. And you are freshly married. Yeah. Relatively yeah. newly, right? Right, yeah. right. Two years. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I'm tormenting Cadence, my uh, <laughs> wife. She, she loves the fact that I'm, you know, very loyal and fiercely independent. Right. <laughs> Depending on the day, right? Right, right. Yeah. I think, you know, like all relationships, it's wonderful. You know, she's, it's like, man, I love you who for, for who you are. If only we could shape a few things, you know, it's just like, man, I'm not sure at this point. It's, I'm easily shaped. It's going to take a pretty heavy blow on the, on the shoulder. Horse is out of stable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've got a magnet on our refrigerator that I put up. Just to kind of give her a clue, it says, if you're going to change a man, you better do it while he's still in diapers. <laughs> yeah. a, little, a little more personal question. You know, sure. Obviously, your uh, climbing resume and career has evolved, mm-hmm. you know, from because I've heard stories of, you know, Dave tied together to another uh, close friend, uh, the shit hitting the fan, and we're jumping off each side of the arete to make sure we stay there, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> to now where, you know... That was Holly, by yeah. the way. <laughs> Let's just be specific. Again, one of my all-time favorite, you know, climbing partners and love of my life for, for many years and still to this day. Yeah, she's an amazing woman. Yeah, and she did jump off the other side of the arete. <laughs> right. Classic. Yeah. Um, but how, how you know, as you age, you know... Yeah. Um, how do you look back at your life and, and do you have the thought of how you want to be remembered or what are you proud of that you've accomplished in your life outside of the climbing feats? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, that's a good question. And, and maybe on several levels, you know, you can look at life and say, you know, what difference have I made or, you know, where can I actually see where I've made a change, that sort of thing. One that I can that kind of ties into the whole Tahoe community and the slideshow thing is I think I, I take a lot of personal pride in the friendships that I've helped form, you know, not just with myself, but where I become good friends with somebody and I have another good friend and I have brought them together with a common goal and love. And, and I know they're going to get along because, you know, we've shared some pretty wild experiences and then they become great friends. And then I, I've seen a lot of that spreading, you know, the ripple, you know, and to me, that's extremely gratifying to see uh, friendships and good relationships grow out of a common love, out of uh, sharing the passion that I've, I've enjoyed doing. So I'd say that's, you know, if... Um, you know, if something, you know, happened tomorrow and people were getting together to kind of remember me, I, I 
two things. One, I wouldn't want it to be one of those things where they're like, oh, I remember all the great things he did. It would be more like, look around at all the lives that he's touched and brought together. Hey, I met you because we went climbing together with Dave, that sort of thing. And um, also, uh, instead of reading a list of accomplishments, I hope somebody reads all the great things in life that I still could have done. You know, I mean, really, the... Uh, that actually intrigues me. That does not intimidate me. To me, the the scariest thing is running out of things to do. So, yeah, it would be nice to go, yeah, look at all the stuff he never got around to, you know. But So, yeah, I think for uh, being kind of a catalyst for friendships, to me, is something I, I would... That would mean a lot to be remembered for that. And I think you it undoubtedly would. Yeah, and just... Our friendship is a result of that string, that connection through Alpenglow. You know, and there's, it's like uh, I see friendships, like not so much as like a linear string, but like spokes on a wheel. You know, a lot of times you'll have somebody and they have all these different friendships and sometimes the different spokes of the wheel, they don't really even end up meeting each other, but you have these, it's, it's, a, it's still a web, they're still connected. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a good thing. No, I totally agree. And I think, you know, we've talked about the, the common thread or, you know, the shared passion or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And I think it's on display in that room once a month, you yeah. know, in, in the winter when we do the shows. That is, I mean, you can literally feel the energy. Oh, yeah. You know, and I have <laughs> to have whiskey to get in front of the crowd because I know I have to do a good job. And right? you do a great job. Well, and you... <laughs> Thank you, but you, you know, you taught me how to do that, um, laid the groundwork. But I do think that common thread is special. And, I, and yeah. I, you know, I find myself wondering, you know, on the top of a peak or things of that nature, man, I wish my dad could see this. Right. Or my grandmother could see this. And because maybe they never have. Right. Uh, or never right. will. And, and I think, you know, the, the common thread that bonds those types of thoughts makes this community so fun and powerful, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, vibrant for sure. And yeah. I think those those hubs, they on the <laughs> wheel, they meet eventually, oh, yeah. right? Eventually. That's yeah. the thing, you know. Yeah. Whatever the degrees of separation <laughs> are in, in Tahoe. Oh yeah. I, I get teased a lot because I'll um, maybe I'm climbing with a friend and we're in Chamonix or Kathmandu or just some crazy place. I'll come around a corner and go, Dave, Dave Nettle, is that you? And it's not like I'm anybody special, but it's just like, oh yeah, we met back in there. And, you know, and it just, it, it never ceases to just like get me grinning that, man, it's a big world, but not that big. And, uh, and that's a great message in itself that, um, you know, just about character in general is that as you get older, there's more lives you touch. Uh, it might seem like a big world, but, you know, the more good you can spread, you know, it's going to uh, be better than, you know, spreading things where, you know, you have a lot of regret. And so, yeah, it's it's fun to to bump into people like that. Do you, Are there regrets that you have in your life? Ooh, you know, we... I, that's a big sigh. That's a big sigh because <laughs> to me that's... That's actually a more difficult question than the one, tell me about your favorite climb. What was your best powder day? You know, it's like, come on. They were all sweet. Yeah, it's just, but regrets are interesting. So the way I've always looked at it is like right here, right now, today, sitting in this room with you, with Luke, 
making this happen. The day I shared uh, working at RopeWorks, training people, this is a great day. I am right where I need to be. So if I'm where I want to be, if I'm happy, if my life is unfolding the way it should, how can you regret something that happened in the past? Really? I mean, there are unfortunate things. People die. I mean, I'll tell you, in... I regret skiing off the side of a ski run in 1985 and shattering my kneecap. That's a bummer. Somebody would say, man, that must be a huge regret. You must be bummed. But the irony is I wasn't planning on coming back to work at Alpenglow. I, that was a one-winter gig. Shattered my kneecap. Couldn't but go back to work at Bear Paw. Came limping it back into Alpenglow and said, hey, Don. And he's like, no, yeah, get back in here. And it shaped my life. So what would you, would you call that a regret or a blessing in disguise or a perspective? Yeah. So I don't really have time for regrets. You know, there might be some things, maybe um, there was a period of time where I had a falling out with my dad, you know, Um, I was like 19 and extremely headstrong, you know, and I lived with some regrets for a year, but those regrets pushed me into action. It made me say, hey, is this how you're going to want to live your whole life having a regret? No way. And it was so funny. We ended up, I came back home. I you know, had moved out by then, came back home. We hadn't talked for several months, which was very unusual, and just stood there in front of each other, and we just we instantly knew, because we were both stubborn, and we just hugged, and it was like, okay, there's a regret but it ended up being a positive, right? It, it shaped the next step in a great relationship with my dad. So, no, got no regrets. Yeah, and I, think I just have life experiences. Right. And I think looking at them and framing them in a positive fashion yeah. is amazing. Yeah. And because I, you, can, yeah. you could view it in the com- completely other direction, right? Yeah, and I think regrets are curable. You know, and so if somebody feels like they have a regret, there's almost something, no matter how long ago it was or how deep it ran, there's almost always something that you can do that can turn that regret into either a learning experience or uh, an opportunity to just, even if it's just introspection, even if it's an apology that you can't make to somebody, you've at least thought about it enough to go, wow, okay, you know. So yeah, no no regrets. Awesome. Moving forward, right stoked. on. Always. Yep. Um, <laughs> what what would you do if you couldn't climb? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, or ski, or, or ski, or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, you know, the, the thing is, there's a lot of things that interest me in life, but to me, I think there's short of a real tragic accident that you know. That, hopefully never happens, but just leaves me devastated. There's always going to be something in the outdoors that will engage me in the same way that it currently is and has in the past. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, when people say, oh, you know, uh, how hard do you climb? You know, do you climb 511C or, you know, is it important to climb this certain peak, you know, that's never been climbed before? You know, I've, I've always tried to avoid basing my level of satisfaction around an absolute, you know, so instead of going, well, you know, I'm happiest when I'm climbing 511, or I'm happiest when I'm on some remote backcountry peak, it's more that I'm happiest when 
I'm experiencing that sense of accomplishment and sharing the adventure with somebody that I like to be around. Those are the things that engage me. So regardless if the my climbing ability or the range I can go on drops off, you're always going to be at that point, right? Whether it's where, where you feel like you're pushing something a little bit, even if it's an easy climb, even if you're just going out for a, an easy mountaineering stroll, if you're still getting those same buzzes that you got from climbing hard technical first ascents, you're, you're probably going to stay pretty satisfied your whole life. Uh, but for the person that says, man, if I'm not climbing 512, I'm not, I'm not happy. Well, sure. Climbing is, it, it's going to be fun, but it's going to come and go. It's just going to be a hobby. Whereas for me, it's not something I do. It's, it's part of who I am. It's an integral part of what makes me tick, but not because of just some high goal that I'm trying to reach, but because I, I love the physical activity. I love the partnership. I love the you know, the, the beauty and the adventure of travel in the mountains. So, yeah, I, I don't see there ever being a point where I just kind of like take to the couch. It doesn't seem that way. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Was that Everest trip... Did you do that with your shattered kneecap? Afterwards. Sh- short, but shortly sh- after. That was actually the... Like 10 days or something. <laughs> no, it was a year later. But it was... Um, that was the carrot that I used to kind of come back from that. So um, I had shattered the, the kneecap uh, in April of uh, 86. And the Everest expedition was in the summer of 87. So... It was one of those things, though, that by the time I was heading to Everest, I was pretty sure I could climb the mountain, but walking downhill with the funky knee was still uncertain. So it was, yeah, it was not a slam dunk. But, yeah. you know, sometimes that's what you need, you know. And uh, there's actually one of the, this is kind of a word of wisdom for a lot of the athletes that are out there that get injured and have a lot of anxiety about coming back and being, you know, oh, man, is my life ruined? And when I shattered my kneecap, I was fortunate through a series of random events to end up on the operating table um, with Richard Stedman, who was at Barton Memorial in South Lake Tahoe at the time, but he was doing all the knees for, you know, the, the top skiers in the world and certainly in, on the uh, North American teams. And afterwards, I really thought it was a game changer. You know, I was 30, 30 years old, not even quite 30 years old. And uh, thinking, that's it. My life as an alpinist is over. I've shattered my kneecap. And I remember Stedman kind of coming in and poking around and saying, well, you know, the bad news is no matter what you do without a kneecap, you're probably never going to get more than 60 to 70% of what a normal knee could do. And, you know, I kind of slumped down thinking, oh, no. Because the good news is you were probably only using about 50% of what your capacity was before, even though you didn't realize it. So you're wow. going to, you're going to get more out of that 70% you have left than you ever thought you could get out of that hundred percent you had before. And that really inspired me. And it's just like, and I think a lot of people have seen that, you know, Tommy Caldwell, right? Cut a finger off, right? You're a rock climber. You're like, Oh dude, done, done. I just lost a finger. Well, Apparently, he didn't get that memo. You know, he went from being a great climber to a world-class climber. So a lot of times it takes a real thump on the, you know, the body to, to realize our potential, our full potential. 
And I like what you say, you can always harness that energy mm-hmm. into a positive. Absolutely. Because some people don't and they fold off of it, right? Right. Well, cool, man. I think we covered it. Yeah. 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 Can't thank you enough for coming and sitting down, taking time out of your day to spend with us, but also everything you do for the community, everything you've done for me personally right on. Um, as a mentor. Um, I'll always be grateful for that. And, and I, it's my hope that we can continue kind of harnessing this energy and getting it out there to the world to make a difference in hopefully in other people's lives to inspire them and motivate them. Cause I think, you know, when I sit at the back of the room at the winter film series and there's 500 or 600 (laughs) people just at rapt attention, that is an amazing feeling. And, And I'm really grateful that you've helped me come to that point in my life and, you know, I'm excited to see where it goes from here on out. Yep. Tag team in it. I love it. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a pleasure. And, uh, for me being able to stay engaged in part of the Tahoe community is, it means so much to me, you know? And so, uh, I think everybody kind of has that sense of feeling like, you know, they get so caught up in the day-to-day work that they, that they're losing that connection and what you bring to the community, as a place where they can touch base in the mountain shop at these events. It, it it's a, re, it's kind of a little oasis, you know, where they can, we can all come back and, and reconnect with the the people and the, and the things that we love. So yeah. Thank you. Oh, cool. It, I'm glad you feel that both way. Ways for it, sure. It's fun. Yeah. And I think too, our, it's not, obviously the crew at the shop is astounding and they're, oh, yeah. they're, we're, a, we're some of the parts for sure. Um, and each person plays a role there. But I do think we exist in an amazing place. Yeah. You know, amazing people are drawn here Yep, for athletic pursuits. And they just are consequently also pretty amazing people, mm-hmm. um, doers for sure. Yeah. But I think it's um, pretty special that we have so much commonality in, in one small location. Yeah. and I, And again, we're kind of just we kind of took a dip and now we're kind of ramping up again, but not to shortstop the conclusion here. But uh, for me, the other thing that gets overlooked a lot is that mountain communities are far less age discriminating. And to me, that is important, you know, that, that you go into a community where the common thread isn't like, oh, you got the young punks and the old farts. There, at least my observation is that um, that the the energy allows for a, a real beautiful common mix and respect at all ages, and uh, and a humbleness too, right? That you're walking around Tahoe and you can't just like go to a grocery store and look at some gal pushing a shopping cart with two kids in her arms and think, oh, there's just some you know old mom. That might be a, a World Cup ski gold medalist, you know. It, I don't know. I just I feel like it's a real, it's a combination of being inspiring and very humbling. It's just like we are just one small part of this bigger picture where age, um, it, it's it's just not a big barrier. No, it's totally true. And I, I mean, I remember skiing Jake's one day, and Jeff and I are burning laps before work, and we flipped at the bench yep. and we're, you know, trying to bang out another half lap before we get to work. And I, you know, I see Rick Sylvester coming up <laughs> behind us and, you know, I was probably shit 28 at the time or something yeah. and, and f- fairly fit. 
And I remember getting on the summit and Rick coming up behind us and he was pissed at me. <laughs> and he, he basically said, you fucker, I couldn't keep up with you. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you base skied off El Cap, like you're a legendary right. outdoor icon, you know? And But it, it's true. And I think it's magic that we hold folks like yourself, yep. you know, who are older than me and, and Rick in high regard. Um, but it also is a two-way street, right? Oh, yeah. And I think that's pretty magical it helps keep uh, us old farts feisty yeah yeah no i love it yeah well cool i think we did it yeah that's a wrap well guys there you have it i sure hope you enjoyed our chat with dave nettle if you like what you're hearing please review us and help spread the good word we need your help to get these interviews out there into the world i hope you'll join us again next week on friday december 15th for a special conversation with alpine climbing legend and Red Bull athlete Will Gadd. This episode was produced by myself and Kristen Hanna, who also edited the episode. A special thanks to our sound ninja, Luke Funicella, who also provides our music. Make sure to follow him on SoundCloud and give him some good love. That was fun. Yeah, sweet. I'm glad you think so.